This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Vera Sachenko and I will be speaking today with Robert Bashara about his exciting recent book, Freud and Said, Contrapuntal Psychoanalysis as Liberation Praxis. The book just came out with Palgrave this winter and is a continuation of Robert Bashara's earlier work on decolonial psychoanalysis and critical Islamophobia studies. The book intervenes into very timely conversations as or as I would see them um, perhaps non-conversations between psychoanalysis, decoloniality, and Marxism. And Robert Bashara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Vera. Uh, Robert, I wonder if you could begin uh, the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up and how you found yourself, where you are now, and especially how you discovered psychoanalysis. Sure. So um, I, uh, I was born and grew up in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, and uh, I immigrated to the US in my around my mid twenties, mainly to pursue uh, graduate studies. Um, I studied uh, uh, film and psychology, uh, but this, how I got into psychoanalysis uh, that goes back really to uh, my undergrad years at the American University in Cairo. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I started to read Freud and also got into Jung. Um, I think, you know, I'm also an artist, so I'm not just an academic. So I have a background in, uh, theater, music, and film. And this is relevant because I got really interested in psychoanalysis through the arts. Mm -hmm. So, um, particularly surrealism. So, uh, I was, you know, back in my, uh, late teens, early twenties, um, I was really into like Dali in Magritte, um, the surrealist painters, but I'm also I was also into uh, surrealist films uh, like uh, Buna Wells' work and David Lynch, um, and so I love that connection between surrealism and psychoanalysis, and that's really uh, you know dreams, uh, how mm-hmm. the unconscious could be represented artistically in film and paintings, etc. So that's really my introduction uh, to psychoanalysis. I was Freud and uh, Jung. And then years later in my PhD program at the University of West Georgia, 
where I was studying uh, critical psychology and qualitative research, I got more interested in um, Lacan and uh, the sort of linguistic turn, um, you know, of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the shift. Uh, where I'm based right now, I'm based in uh, uh, northern New Mexico. Uh, I teach here full time at uh, Northern New Mexico College, uh, and it's a very interesting institution because it uh, uh, mainly serves uh, underserved students in the area who are primarily uh, Native American and Hispanic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really enjoy the work that I do here, and I actually got to introduce uh, you know psychoanalysis to my students, and especially uh, in relation to film uh, film studies. Great. I, I think I saw on the on the website of, of the school that they advertise, advertise themselves as the most affordable um, yes. college education. Yeah, that's uh, very important work. Um, so I wanted to ask you to start talking about the book and, and perhaps ask you what motivated you to write it uh, now and to write it the way that you did. Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, it is a sequel to my first book, which is uh, Decolonial Psychoanalysis. Um, Decolonial Psychoanalysis uh, basically uh, was based on my dissertation. And uh, one of the, um, there's some uh, sections in there in Decolonial Psychoanalysis wherein I uh, write about Freud uh, in relation to Edward Said, um, particularly focusing on Orientalism and uh, Said's last book, which is Freud and the Non-European. And um, uh, that section uh, really attracted uh, or intrigued one of my committee members, Hatem Bazian, who's a dear colleague of mine. And he told me, you should expand this. Uh, it's very interesting. And so he kind of planted the seed for me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was already like developing those connections, but it wasn't the focus of that first book. So then I, you know, I had to think about it for like a few years and, and kind of outline uh, my ideas and really investigate um, the connection. So I decided, well, to really be fair to this topic, I have to write a whole book exploring the theoretical links be between uh, Freud and Said, which, uh, as far as I know, hasn't been done before. Yeah, I, I thought that this was one of the undeniable strengths of this book to have this analysis of many, if not all, of Said's works and this excavation of Freud's trace in informing Said's work. Um, and in particular, as you mentioned, the development of Orientalism as a concept, which as we probably all know this concept in the humanities, I mean, certainly in culture studies and post-colonial studies, um, I wonder if if it's as known as in psychoanalysis as it perhaps could be. Um, so could you perhaps uh, walk us through a few of the theoretical linkages between Freud and Seed and perhaps what Seed takes from Freud and what it what he leaves with Freud um, and maybe in what ways Seed's work helps to decolonize Freud if, if it does? Yeah, so... Um, so the the first chapter of the book is kind of an overview of the relationship between post-colonialism as a field uh, and psychoanalysis. So I try to do like a, uh, you know, a literature review of that uh, relationship um, before I get into the theoretical links between Freud and Said, which basically are 
the three main body chapters, two, three, and four of the book. And basically, from my uh, from my studies, um, uh, I found that uh, so Edward Said's first book is on Joseph Conrad, and it's probably his least read book because it would uh, it would mainly interest Joseph Conrad's scholars, right? Um, and um, uh, the second one is called Beginnings, and that's the one that really. Uh, you can see uh, Said engaging with Freud's uh, writings, particularly the interpretation of dreams, uh, but other works as well. Um, and so that that second book, I would say, uh, is quite underrated and overshadowed by his third book, which is Orientalism. So mm-hmm. uh, I start the second chapter on beginnings, um, sort of analyzing how Edward Said um, looks at Freud not uh, not just as a scientist who invents a field called psychoanalysis, but also, and more importantly, as a writer, uh, the author's psychoanalysis through his writing style. So, you know, uh, Said is interested as a textual critic in how, um, how Freud uh, frames psychoanalysis um, through the techniques of writings themselves. And what's interesting is that he noticed that um, the way the interpretation of dreams was written, it's almost like a dream itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it includes a lot of Freud's own dreams and analyses of other people's dreams. Uh, but uh, Said points out that there are eight editions of the book. Uh, so it basically is structured like a palimpsest where there's a lot of editing and uh, a lot of repression. Uh, so in a way, uh, you know, whether this was uh, Freud's intention or not, in terms of his method, uh, there's a kind of an encounter with the unconscious through the reading that text, right? So that's a powerful statement in and of itself. Um, so, and in that sense, he looks at him as a modern writer and looks at that text as a very important text uh, for the humanities, right? Um, now that has a, I think it has a, a a big influence on Edward Said's thinking and his kind of theorization later on, but also his writing style in Orientalism. Um, so that's kind of the beginning, actually, that book called Beginnings. And then <laughs> the, the second time, uh, I argue that Freud is repressed in Orientalism, which is Said's most famous text and the one that is considered to be the origin of post-colonialism as a field of study. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I argue that he is repressed because he's cited three times in Orientalism. Freud is cited three times in Orientalism. Uh, and yet, uh, the specter or the shadow or the ghost of Freud and his theory, psychoanalysis, is uh, very much there, right? Uh, so it's there unconsciously working through the text of Orientalism. And this is most clear in uh, Edward Said's theorization of Orientalism, which is basically how um, Europeans um, uh, represent uh, what they call the Orient, right? Um, And so these representations tend to be stereotypical. And basically, I think the main argument that uh, Said makes is that uh, Orientalism functions like a dream. It's structured like a dream. 
right? So you can see the influence of the interpretation of dreams there. And uh, Orientalism itself uh, is, is structured into latent Orientalism and manifest Orientalism. He actually uses that language. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So I can say more, um, but I, I feel like you wanted to ask something here. Actually, I wanted to ask about the latent and manifest Orientalism because it, it seemed to be um, the, 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 the one spot where you really catch Sa Saeed red-handed. <laughs> Absolutely. And so... And it's fascinating to me because it's like right there in the language, but then Freud is pretty much repressed in the text. In right? favor of Foucault, right? In Contest. favor of Foucault, yeah. And so this is kind of the conflict, I would say, the anxiety that uh, uh, Said is dealing with. And it's kind of a, an amb a theoretical ambivalence. He likes uh, Foucault's theory of discursive formation, and it's very useful for him. But then he uh, ends up like... Um, you know, forgetting about or repressing psychoanalysis, but it's still it's still there informing the text whether he likes it or not. So the paradox that I show is that even though he sides with Foucault consciously, by repressing Freud unconsciously, he's actually affirming the importance of psychoanalysis for him, right? But what does this really mean? I mean, what does it mean to choose uh, right Freud even unconsciously over Foucault? It has something to do with the kind of subject or the kind of... What, yeah. is, what matters think, in analysis, right? I think he is dissatisfied with uh, Foucault's theorization of the subject. I think this is really uh, the heart of the matter. So he likes the, the, the Foucault's notion of power and uh, the relationship between power and knowledge and how he conceives of discourse, which are, of course, very important. Uh, but he doesn't like the idea that the subject is just an effect of discourse, an effect of power. Uh, basically, Foucault's trivialization of the subject, right? And mm -hmm. the subject of psychoanalysis, the subject of desire, appeals to him more. Uh, and so he, he makes the argument there in Orientalism that while he uh, accepts uh, the notion of discourse, he still believes in the importance of the subject. And so later on in his life, he's going to actually completely uh, uh, sort of let go of Foucault and return to Freud. And I'll, I'll show this in the text. But to go back to your question about latent Orientalism and manifest Orientalism. So in the interpretation of dreams, basically uh, Freud shows that, you know, when we dream, uh, when we're dreaming, which is of course, uh, you know, the unconscious uh, fulfillment of a wish and the wish is disguised. So it's always distorted as we never directly uh, see what we're wishing for. And that's why we need to do uh, interpretation or analysis, but basically, uh, he talks about, Freud talks about the process of dream work, which basically translates latent dream thoughts uh, or signifiers into manifest dream content or images, right? Mm -hmm. So the dream work does that. Uh, and so the, 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 the task of the analyst, the task of the interpreter is to um, go back to the latent dream thoughts. And you do this through interpretation, right? So not to be distracted by the images and try to figure what are the images covering up in terms of what are the unconscious signifiers that are doing some work here? And so this kind of structure uh, is, uh, is, is operative in Orientalism, Said's text. So basically, you have uh, uh, latent Orientalism or uh, signifiers about the Orient, uh, which are covered up through the Orientalist work, functioning like the dream work. 
uh, and then producing uh, manifest Orientalism, these images and stereotypes and uh, visual representations that we see of the Orient from the perspective of uh, Europe, right? So mm-hmm. the task of uh, what I call contrapuntal interpretation, which would be Said's um, um, use of Freud, but applying it to textual criticism, is to try to figure out, well, what are these stereotypical images? Uh, what are these Orientalist images that are manifest, uh, basically covering up in terms of how signifiers work unconsciously? So we can figure out how this works. And here we have uh, another transfer of, of the psychoanalytic uh, ideas into kind of uh, thinking about culture. I wanted to uh, ask you to talk more about this, to, to say maybe what you find in Freud and Lacan and, and the Freud that you find inside uh, in thinking about culture and particularly perhaps uh, in the import of the concept of the unconscious, uh, which you then develop in saying that there's perhaps a double or multiple unconsciousness. Um, yes. So uh, what is it uh, here from the psychoanalytic discipline that we find um, that may be useful in culture theory and radical politics? Well, there are a number of things. I mean, they're in Freud and Lacan. So, um, I mean, Freud shows with his um, uh, analysis uh, of dreams and other ways of encountering the unconscious, such as free association, jokes, uh, parapraxis, what have you, symptoms, uh, is, uh, you know, there's no way of directly encountering the unconscious, but there are ways of encountering the unconscious indirectly, right? And I think the most beautiful insight is that the unconscious is hidden in plain sight. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a, um, because a lot of people, I think when they hear the word unconscious, they confuse it with subconscious. And I, I treat that kind of distinction, which Freud obviously wrote about. For him, the term was pre-conscious. So subconscious means below consciousness, uh, which is basically related to memory, long-term memory. Uh, But unconscious is something that is uh, outside or not consciousness, something that's very different. It has a completely different logic. And to say that it's hidden in play sight means that it's not hidden in some kind of depth. Right, so we can locate the unconscious uh, in the very surface and form of things, whether that's subjectivity or a text. Right, mm-hmm. um, so that's the first insight: is that when we're analyzing anything, uh, we don't have to look for the unconscious in some kind of hidden depth. We can actually locate it in the very surface and the form of the thing that we're analyzing. Uh, so that's that. That I love that insight. The second thing, and this is more from Lacan, is uh, this notion of extimacy, which uh, mm-hmm. Said also writes about as exteriority. Uh, and this is the notion that could also be phrased in terms of psychosocial, is that the relationship, the unconscious is not something that's individual. It's something that's trans-individual. It's something that is between the subject and the big other. Uh, so, um, so that's what makes it weird. You can't locate it in one place. It's kind of in between. Um, I love that notion because, um, you know, of course, Lacan said um, the unconscious is the discourse of the other. Um, those kind of uh, linguistic structural insights are very important for me as someone that was trained in uh, discourse analysis. Um, and so we can locate the unconscious in, uh, in the surface, 
of things and the form of things that we're analyzing, whether they're films, um, text, subjectivity, and it's also psychosocial. So it tells us something about the subject as well as the other at the same time, because of that, um, you know, the discourse of the other pretty much informing what the unconscious is. Right. And there's there's an interesting um, little um, discussion there that you, you have of uh, the the differences or maybe more the similarities between this version of unconscious and Jung's collective unconscious, which I believe you cite. Uh, oh, who do you cite in saying that um, there's no point in talking that uh, in saying that the unconscious is collective because of course it's uh, more than one person is involved or, or something along these lines. I mean, then conscious be a discourse of the other. Uh, and when we talk culture, um, we, we, we try it at least, uh, when, when culture is being spoken from the kind of Lacanian field of theory, um, there is a strong, um, resistance to, to perhaps, um, uh, an idea of unconscious as shared, <laughs> uh, by multiple people in some way. So perhaps, mm-hmm. Perhaps you could clarify my own blunder here in 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 addressing if if there's a difference in in how how you pick up um, this concept of unconscious from Lacan and and what does Jung have to do with it? And what yeah. comes to mind in my for me is also um, an evocation from Juliet Mitchell's psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and feminism, where she she quotes Freud and saying that there's something like the collective mind, which is not the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Perhaps yeah, so uh, I mean, I I cite uh, Fanon and Freud uh, in their rebuttal uh, of uh, Jung, uh, Jung's notion of the collective unconscious. Um, so the question of culture for me is important, especially the question of cultural difference, which mm-hmm. I talk about a lot in the book, uh, and uh, I also talk about colonial difference, and I think the two are connected. Um, so basically. To get to your question, I have to kind of get to an earlier argument, which is that psychoanalysis for me is a uh, is a modern project, and mm-hmm. because it's a modern project uh, in a modern rhetoric, uh, it is informed by some kind of colonial logic, right? So I show this obviously uh, in Freud's uh, work, um, but I also kind of try to trace. Um, the genealogy of this, right? Uh, especially going back to the colonization of the Americas. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and so, the question of culture is important because, uh, from the perspective of post-colonialism or decoloniality, uh, non-European cultures uh, don't seem to be included or addressed by psychoanalysis. So that's kind of like the problem, right? So my question is, how can uh, you know, when I when I critique something like psychoanalysis, I critique it from a place of love, right? So you can see that I engage with psychoanalysis in the book from within the logic of psychoanalysis. But at the same time, I try to push it beyond its limit so that if it's possible, it could be expanded to uh, become worldly, if you will. And this is a concept from Said. Uh, so that uh, it's not just... Um, a system that's that's situated on modernity, but it's a system that can really work for uh, everyone around the world. 
So this is kind of pushing it outside of its comfort zone. So the question of culture uh, is important in that sense, and it's informed by that kind of colonial split. Um, so um, the how does the, the the question of culture relate to the unconscious? It has to do with the uh, linguistic question, right? So we talk about the unconscious as the discourse of the other. Once we say that it's the discourse of the other, uh, we're talking about language. I mean, mm-hmm. how else are we going to, you know, make sense of this discourse, right? Well, um, at least in, in Lacanese, this, <laughs> that seems to be the prime way of making sense of it. But even for, for Freud, like even when we go it's back true. to the interpretation of dreams, like when he's talking about latent dream thoughts being the thing that we're interested in, uh, so those are the signifiers, those are the words. Uh, and I also make a connection between uh, later on, especially going to mono, Moses and monotheism, Freud's last book, uh, which I think is controversial, but uh, you know, the, there's something about the aniconism or the rejection of icons and visual representation uh, of the sacred and a kind of a preference for the word. And this is something that you see in Judaism as well as in Islam, but it's something that you also see in psychoanalysis. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a primacy of the symbolic over the imaginary. Um, uh, so my point is that uh, the, the cultural question is, is always going to be tied to the linguistic or the language question. So um, what, what languages uh, do we associate with psychoanalysis, right? Obviously, first one will be German, right? And then uh, you got the translations uh, and you got the English and French, right? And maybe you can get other ones. But um, so it's already culturally embedded by the fact that it's German or English or, or French, right? Because any language is always embedded in a specific culture. And so that's, that's the, this is the cultural question for me. It's not, it's not a Jungian question of archetypes uh, that are shared uh, in a mythic way, so I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. But yeah, I'm I talking think it's about. Important to clarify. <laughs> yeah, but what I'm talking about uh, is that every time that we situate uh, psychoanalysis in relation to a specific language, uh, then we are already doing something that's cultural. And so, what are the languages that are excluded, and that tells us about what cultures are also excluded. As you were talking, I find found myself thinking about how um, popular psychoanalysis has become in Latin America, and uh, yes. of course, Spanish being a language in which so many books are written that we don't even access those people who don't speak Spanish. Actually, I I don't know about you. Yes, that's a fascinating trend, of course. Uh, and so, uh, of course, when you when you um, speak in the within the context of the decolonial option which is uh, brought by theorists and practitioners uh, from Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also interesting to see that there's a, a sort of split there, that on the, that in the one hand, uh, the psychoanalytic institution and practice is rather, as far as I know, um, seen as, as colonizing. But yeah. I, I do see, I do see, um, I do see that in your book, uh, psychoanalysis becomes a kind of tool for decolonization and anti-racist struggle. I mean, that's certainly where absolutely you take it. Yeah, and so there's kind of like a dual aim, if you will, and I write about um, how there's a 
kind of an aim of decolonizing Freud in order to theorize decolon decolonial subjectivity. And when I say decolonize Freud, so people don't misunderstand me, it doesn't mean that I'm canceling Freud. You know, I'm very much, <laughs> you know, in love with Freud and the project of psychoanalysis, but I wanted to do more than what it's intended to do. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the point of my project. And then the second part is psychoanalyze Said as a means to articulate the transmodern other or big other. And so psychoanalyze Said, of course, uh, doesn't mean that I psychoanalyze him as a person. I'm more psychoanalyzing his text and in relation to psychoanalysis. Um, and how Freud returns, uh, you know, he's repressed in Orientalism, but then how he returns in Said's last book, and which is Freud and the non-European, and how that book deals with Freud's last book. Like that kind of um, book ending is very fascinating for me, right? That kind of, and it's not something that is quite articulated by by others. And there's this kind of theoretical tension between post-colonialism and psychoanalysis, which I'm trying to resolve, right? Obviously, through uh, the terms other and other in particular, I guess. Especially, yeah. So, the, you know, um, and that's why I, I end up saying that there are two different others, um, you know, and that we should be able to account for those two different others. Uh, and that's the contrapuntal move. I mean, this is, um, so contrapuntal is a term that is used by Edward Said and his sequel to Orientalism, Culture and Imperialism. And he develops that as a kind of reading strategy so that he can uh, basically, and this is a term from music theory, where mm -hmm. you basically in a composition you would have two different melodies that are doing different things at the same time. So it creates a counterpoint. And so he, he of course, was uh, he loved music and he wrote about music. And so he tried to kind of be inspired by this idea from music theory and apply it to textual criticism to kind of see uh, how you can, uh, let's say, analyze a colonial text and also figure out some kind of decolonial dimension and, uh, and, and dimension of liberation or resistance at the same time. So can you hold the two? And this is, and this is the, the point of the, uh, the contrapuntal psychoanalysis is to account for, let's say, colonial or post-colonial psychoanalysis, which I kind of group together, and that's why mm -hmm. I write post in parentheses, and a decolonial psychoanalysis. And the point is not to say that, uh, you know, let's reject the first and just focus on the second, but thinking about the relationship between the two uh, in a dialectical way, right? And so, um, and that's, this idea also uh, is expressed in different ways by uh, Enrique Dussel, one of, mm -hmm. one of the theorists that really informed my thinking. And he has a term called transmodernity, uh, which is basically his alternative to both critical mo modernism, a project like the Frankfurt School, uh, and postmodernism. Um, and so these are basically for him two internal critiques of modernity that do not address the colonial question, mm -hmm. right? So what does transmodernity do? Well, he's not saying that let's reject modernity uh, because that would be uh, illogical, right? There are obviously many things that maybe are a result of... Maybe impossible as well. And, and maybe impossible. The point for me is how do we, uh, you know, get the best out of modernity and de-link de it from... Coloniality. That's for me the, the key thing. 
And also include next to that, and this is very important, the, alter- the alterity of modernity. So what modernity doesn't include, which in many cases tends to be the non-European world, non-European cultures, whether they be indigenous, uh, black cultures in the global north or uh, you know, the tri-continent of Latin America, Africa, and Asia, right? Um, so there's a lot of uh, rich traditions and practices and theories and knowledge and that shouldn't be ignored um and so we're saying let's let's um uh, Ducelle is saying let's include the best of modernity and its alterity while at the same time delinking uh modernity from coloniality and that's the decolonial point that right. delinking and, and so you... applying this to psychoanalysis how does it look like this is basically what i try to do how does it look like? Uh, is, is also, <laughs> I mean, you, we have we have the textual evidence of how does how it looks like when um, when how these, does it look uh, like in the clinic? Is that the question? Um, perhaps that's where I'm I'm leading to as well. Um, if you have any um, ideas about what how can it take place in the clinic? I mean, also because you call Black Lives Matter a transversal right. movement and. Right. You know, my question is: is how how do you bring Black Lives Matter with psychoanalysis? I mean, that's <laughs> it's a challenge. Yeah. So for me, the 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 clinic, you know, the one of the things I I make a, I make a link between how Freud uh, looks at repression in the clinic. He's interested in psychosocial distress. We've already established that the unconscious is psychosocial, right? It's that link between the subject and the big other. And so psychosocial distress is kind of a general term uh, for the different kind of um, psychic structures that are popular in psychoanalysis, such as neurosis, psychosis, and perversion. But I'm using that as an umbrella term, right? And mm-hmm. how the, these forms of distress are very much, in my opinion, linked to what I call the apparatus of racialized or racial capitalism. So I try to situate psychoanalysis within this a long durée or long history of uh, racialized capitalism, which informs, that's the context. So if psychoanalysis doesn't, uh, you know, account for that, doesn't uh, take that into consideration, then they're kind of operating in a vacuum, right? Yes. Um, So the suffering that exists in the world, a lot of it is a function of that racialized or racial capitalism. So it's the suffering that we can talk about as racism or class struggle or sexism or all the different forms of oppression and violence. So this is what I'm interested in, the kind of uh, context. The, and psychoanalysis is in that context. It's not outside of it. Exactly. And so it has to, to, to be able to make sense of it. And so my point is, uh, uh, you know, I have kind of... Um, a graph in there about the apparatus of racialized capitalism, uh, which taking account uh, of, you know, uh, different forms of oppression, but there's also like a, a distinction between the zone of being and the zone of non-being and who who is basically human and who's not human, which is uh, has to do with hierarchy and oppression and how that operates. And so, um, and that's just a, an analysis of, how the world has unfolded, unfortunately, right? Uh, with, you know, the theft of land, the theft of bodies, slavery, uh, all those things that still inform our world today. 
right? That's kind of the le- the kind of legacy. Um, and so I think a much stronger psychoanalysis would be able to account for all those things. And uh, I believe that psychoanalysis, since its inception, had a, uh, this uh, uh, liberation uh, aspect to it. Uh, uh, and some, you know, other scholars uh, point to it too. It's not just me. So Patricia Jerovici or uh, Gaston Bide or um, Sheldon George, right? They, these different theories are trying to uh, point to these dimension. My point is um, that psychoanalysis, as it exists in a kind of classical way, tends to be situated in the zone of being, right? And we have to really emphasize and give primacy to what is called the zone of non-being by Fanon. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so that's the zone that includes uh, racialized folks, that includes the underclass, uh, that includes what I call, you know, the lumpen proletariat, uh, that includes um, all kinds of uh, outgroup uh, or subordinate um individuals or groups in societies right so i call them the racialized or politicized the politicized is kind of a term that would include um people who are oppressed within uh, any kind of hegemonic system yeah right um so i want to kind of think about psychoanalysis from that place right <laughs> this is what i try to do i, I yeah. think about it from that place and and so another thinker that informs my thinking is Paulo Freire, mm-hmm. who talked about, you know, his famous book is The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, which looks at the dialectic between the oppressor and the oppressed. And his point, because a lot of times when people hear these kind of critiques, they think that, oh, we're just going to replace the oppressors with the oppressed, and that's how we shift it, right? That that's, that's what revolution means. But that's not what I talk about. I talk about that the oppressed, I mean, Freire talks about how the oppressed must lead the struggle toward collective liberation and that that liberation process involves the humanization of both the oppressed and the oppressors. Because when the oppressors oppress, they are also uh, dehumanizing themselves. Yeah. You know? And so uh, this, this question is very important for psychoanalysis. This question of dehumanization and uh, and 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 descendants of people who have been historically dehumanized and you know enslaved etc like psychoanalysis has to be able to to theorize that and work with that in the clinic and outside to hear it yeah as well i mean for me the the difficulty of of um thinking further with this with which all seems very well, very timely and very important, and as an intervention and so into psychoanalytic institution, I, I think very necessary. The challenge was uh, in in bringing this um, sort of anarchic impulse, um, mm. um, you know, in conversation. How do we do this contrapuntal move of bringing a, um, an institution like the psychoanalytic institution, which exists? as kind of shared responsibility between analysts and analysts and supervisors mm-hmm. and peers and other participants in this discourse. And that sometimes becomes very elitist or maybe most of yes. the times becomes very elitist. Right. And that also has this particular asymmetry implied in its form, which is, the, which is created by the screen as well. I mean, 
the, the kind of um, projection site for, for the analysis. So I, I wanted to understand um, whether you're advocating for also kind of wild analysis or whether uh, it has to do with reform. I mean, I know this goes beyond the, the book uh, itself, yeah. but it's well, uh, an not opportunity. Wild, not wild analysis, because that's, a, I think, a pejorative, right? Uh, but my point is, I mean, you talk about anarchism and I talk about anarchism at the end uh, in terms of anarchist power because, you know, Hannah Arendt uh, distinguishes, uh, you know, between power and violence and how power is an end and violence is a means, right? Uh, so violence is uh, instrumental. It has to be justified and power has to be legitimate. Um, so liberation is a process, which means it's going somewhere. So mm-hmm. there's some kind of destination. And so the destination that I try to imagine is a non-hierarchical one. And for it to be non-hierarchical <laughs> means that it's anarchist, right? Yes, yes. Now, this is very much, in my opinion, in line with uh, psychoanalytic theory because uh, the central concept of free association as a technique, but also this is a relevant phrase for anarchism. Free so the free, right. free association. And so another example is, of course, the famous uh, group Das Unbehagen, which calls itself the anti-institutional institution, right? Uh, so we, we have to kind of, um, and I talk about uh, the horizontalization of uh, something like, uh, you know, Lacan's discourses. Right, which are as if you look at the four discourses, uh, they're all premise on, on hierarchy, right? Uh, so, uh, is there a way to to think about those relationships, uh, but in a non-hierarchical way? Now, of course, this you know goes in a kind of a utopian vision. Yes, but it has to because the world as it exists today is not good. <laughs> It's not, it's, you know, Freud talks about in Moses and monotheism. This is why he identifies with Moses, the Egyptian, uh, because he's very attracted to uh, some of those ancient Egyptian principles, you know, that that go back to Akhenaten and this religion of Atonism, which is supposedly the first monotheistic religion that uh, becomes Judaism eventually. And so... That principle of mat, M-A-A-T, which is a principle of truth and justice, it's something that Freud is very attracted to. So you can see that he's not just talking about this abstractly, but he's also reflecting on the experience of the Nazi annexation of Austria and him having to escape the country with his family and his belongings and you know, leave to the UK uh, to survive. Um, that kind of horrible experience, right? And so this question of truth and justice, it's relevant back then, continues to be relevant, and it's a very important question for psychoanalysis, you know? Uh, And so um, it has to do with, as you said, asymmetry. It has to do uh, with hierarchy. It has to do with oppression and violence. Very endless and important, of course, uh, deliberation. Uh, 
I was interested in how you framed it as a kind of analytical deformation as opposed to the Lacanian analytical formation. Yes. Um, and in particular, yes. you, you talk about the discourse of the analyst as a kind of decolonized social theory. Um, yeah. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because we also have the graphs there. But um, Yeah, so this, this uh, upsets a lot of clinicians because when you have like, <laughs> non-clinicians talking about this stuff, they get really upset. But for me, you know, like the analyst, the, the function of the analyst is to, you know, cause the desire of the subject, the divided subject, so that they can uh, produce, you know, new uh, master signifiers and change the relationship with um, their symptoms so that they can have, you know, experience more jouissance or a different kind of jouissance, different kind of enjoyment. And so that analyst, anyone can take that position. That's my point. It doesn't have to be mm -hmm. like the typical psychoanalyst. And in fact, what I, what I, and that's my point kind of inspired by Freire is that the best person to do that is someone that experienced oppression firsthand uh, to, to be that, to, to function as that cause, especially because those are the same individuals that tend to be objectified in a racist way, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Fanon talks about the how blacks are racialized as, as phobogenic objects, right? So that means that, um, you know, like the way um, the the way that whites, especially you know, racists relate to um, blacks. There, there's this kind of already uh, anxiety uh, provoked by their perception of of blacks as phobogenic objects, as objects that you know cause fear and anxiety, right? So they are already positioned as objects. So they are the perfect, you know, the racialized people, politicized people, are the perfect people as the oppressed to lead this. Uh, struggle toward collective liberation and actually function uh, as the analyst, right? That's so a very I'm, interesting question. Of, of yeah. course, what makes an analyst an analyst? Uh, I, I remember Derrida's smirk um, after Lacan died, uh, in which he said, uh, "I do not believe that one is an analyst merely because they get paid." Right. Uh, and um, I mean, I think that you you open a very critical conversation about this. Uh, with um, these parallels of perhaps also the racialized other um, being in a space of analyst through being object A, perhaps. Yes, yes. And I'll give you another example. So in my first book, which uh, deals with, uh, you know, what I call Islamophobia, Islamophilia as a fantasy, uh, which is part of this bigger ideology that's connected with the war and terror. Um, so I interviewed uh, 19 U.S. Muslims uh, about their experiences with Islamophobia, but also how they resisted. And I wanted, um, and so I wanted to kind of see what kind of subjectivities uh, are there uh, that are resistant to, you know, the the hegemonic um, or you know ideology. And so basically, there's a epistemic resistance or resistance through critical knowledge, which very much aligns with the hysterics discourse. So this is where uh, the U.S. Muslims basically reject 
the kind of knowledge, the dominant knowledge about them and how they're being represented. And so mm -hmm. this is something that you see also in Edward Said's sequel to Orientalism, because basically Orientalism deconstructs the uh, European stereotypes about the Orient. But the, the, the criticism he received for that book is that, okay, you did a great job deconstructing the stereotypes, but you didn't look at all at how the Orient represents itself. So mm -hmm. he, he took a long time to kind of go back to that question and he addressed it with culture and imperialism, which is the question of self-representation. And so uh, the second form of resistance I found was ontic resistance, what I call ontic resistance, which is resistance through being. And so uh, these US Muslims, just by the fact that they are Muslims in a hostile environment that's Islamophobic, um, that's already a form of resistance, just to occupy space and time, right? And uh, in, that, in that kind of ontic resistance, they function as an objet, right? Like um, when, if it's a woman wearing the veil or the hijab, right? Or if it's a man with a beard, right? Uh, so uh, they're causing the desire and they're causing anxiety for the other. Uh, and so, it's it's uncomfortable right for for the racist subject but but it's uh it's important if we're going to uh you know live in a in a kind of pluriversal world <laughs> right so um in conclusion i wanted to ask you robert about um the distinction you introduce between various kinds of pleasure which is an intervention into perhaps Lacanian understanding of masculine and feminine jouissance with the, with the concepts of divine pleasure and particularly in um, contrast to the pleasure of freedom offered by liberal society. Um, so if you could speak about this and um, how it comes into under the framework of your, your project on psychoanalysis. Okay, so basically, you know, Lacan talks about uh, sexual difference or sexuation uh, or the difference between phallic or masculine jouissance and um, feminine or other jouissance and how there's no rapport between the two. Um, uh, for me, that kind of uh, theorization uh, applies specifically to the zone of being. Um, so uh, those who are, are privileged basically within the apparatus of racial capitalism. But I don't think it applies as much to those who have been uh, historically uh, racialized, enslaved, not even gendered. So, I mean, the slave was not even considered human. It was, it was property. It was an object. It was a thing. So we need a different theorization for uh, those, the descendants of those in the zone of non-being or those who continue to be in the zone of non-being because they're, they're in the underclass. And so I introduced this conception of colonial difference. And uh, in within that, you have two modes of jouissance. Uh, you have uh, mythical jouissance, uh, which is the kind of jouissance that is based on oppression and violence. So uh, the kind of jouissance that would support the apparatus of racialized capitalism to continue to exist as as it is. So without questioning it, without making any major changes or revolutionary changes. And the the other kind of jouissance that is there from, from the zone of non-being is a divine jouissance, which is a jouissance, jouissance related to liberation, 
collective liberation as opposed to individualistic freedom, my freedom versus yours, collective liberation uh, of everyone, uh, but led by the oppressed, led by those uh, who are in the zone of non-being, and also divine violence. So, of course, that distinction comes from Walter Benjamin, um, and uh, it's rooted in Jewish uh, mysticism, um, but he does give a concrete example in Critique of Violence, uh, of uh, divine violence, because it's a very debated uh, concept. But he talks about the general uh, proletarian or revolutionary strike, uh, which is different from the kind of strike of uh, that is uh, just about raising um, you know, the minimum wage or something like that that has kind mm-hmm. of a short-term goal. For him, the general strike has the goal of completely dismantling the system, right? So imagine if there's a general strike that continues for more than one day, you know the effect of that on the whole economy. It's it's major. It, and, and, and it could be revolutionary. And of course... Um, he does. He does ascribe to anarchism as well. Um, so um, this kind of divine violence, um, you can think about it also in terms of uh, the indigenous cultures. Uh, you know, especially in the Americas, that have been uh, repressed, oppressed, in terms of uh, you know their uh, rituals and practices, uh, which are inherently, in many cases, spiritual and sacred. And that connection is uh, also there in Freud when he identifies with uh, the Egyptian Moses and especially the principle of Mat, the principle of truth and justice. That kind of uh, spiritual dimension is important. It's also there with the black spirituals, which uh, provided a connection for enslaved Africans with African um, traditions and religions. Uh, And it was a reminder for them you can say, to use Freud's term, an archaic inheritance, right? Uh, uh, something that links them together and re- to remind them of their humanity in the face of, you know, the horrible experience of uh, being abducted and enslaved and being forced to work, um, f- you know, for nothing and face uh, death and violence and mutilation and rape and all of that. So... Um, we shouldn't shy away from that kind of spiritual dimension um, that is that has a kind of intellectual uh, aspect too. It's in Freud, it's in Benjamin, uh, but it's in other traditions as well. Well, Robert, I have so many questions left. <laughs> we could do another hour, but we've yeah. taken a lot of your time already. <laughs> no, it's, so. I know I didn't get to a lot of things in the book, but that, I hope the reader, the listener... You know, they get the book so they can see this a lot more than than what I talked about. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now, if you have a project for a book or activism. Yeah, so um, I actually have a translation that um, should be coming out pretty soon. Um, It's a translation of an Egyptian book of philosophy from uh, the mid-90s by Egyptian philosopher uh, Murad Wahba. And it's uh, called Fundamentalism and Secularization. And so I translated it from Arabic to English. That should be coming out pretty soon. And I'm really excited about it because uh, not many people in 
Euro America know about Muradwaba. And part of my project is, you know, of decoloniality is to introduce, um, you know, thinkers from the global south that are doing important work, but are not known, uh, you know, uh, in the global north just because uh, of the language barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting project. Um, I, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today, and uh, it was a great pleasure to to speak to you. My pleasure is all but mine. I th- thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. <laughs>